Welcome to Warnsville Reaching New Heights. I'm your host, June Scharf, and today's guest is someone who has very likely impacted your life without you realizing it. It is Tom Brescia, and he has owned uh, FM and AM radio stations in this town and elsewhere nationwide, as well as TV stations. Um, and one little known fact that I'm just going to deliver up front, uh, for those of you who go back in time, there was a station, 3WE, and uh, I'd like to share that the E in those letters stood for Ambrosia. You didn't know that, but now you do. So the other thing to know about him is that he grew up in the 50s in Warrensville Heights, so he's homegrown, and he's done very well for himself. He took all these stations and sold them in the late 90s and made a lot of money. Uh, but his roots are really uh, what established who he is. I should mention that his father was on the city council here, and Tom worked for the service department uh, handling garbage. But I will say he got fired from that job for goofing off. So anyways, he has learned quite a few lessons here, and they have served him well. So please enjoy this extended, more extended than usual conversation with Tom and Brescia. Tom, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast, that you should be in your comfort zone here, being in a studio. I am. Okay, that's great. Um, so we're going to tell your story, and it's a great tale of success, but the thing that strikes me about you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is it appears that you are not from the school of hard knocks. Um, you seem like you've been on an upward trajectory since the beginning, so that's sort of your entry point here. Oh, good. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, again, uh, I'm glad that you see it that way. I, I tell people... Uh, that we weren't poor. My dad was a uh, carpenter. All my uncles were tradesmen. We were like the Jeffersons when we were young. I was born on 123rd in Kinsmen. We moved up to 132nd and 147th. And finally, we got rich and moved to Warrensville Heights. How wonderful mm -hmm. was that? And uh, we lived in a home. Prior to that, we lived into in a uh, apartment. And Warrensville was just a wonderful place for me to grow up. Well, you graduated from the high school in 1964. And you were inducted into the school's Hall of Fame. And what's noteworthy, one noteworthy fact, is that you played varsity basketball for all four years. So you're tall now. Were you tall in high school? Is that I, I part was, of the, your I secret? I was, yeah, sure. It was, it was easy. I was 6'4". Oh, wow. Uh, when I was a sophomore, so uh, uh, basketball, we had great teachers. Bob Tagger was the coach at the time, Stan Teachow. Teachout's gone now. Rudy Korsgaard just passed away, but great coaches and great teams. Warrensville was a family-oriented area, great place to raise children. We walked to school. Who's uh, we? You had a brother? I had a friend. My brother had a brother, Jim, but Jim was three years older than me, and mm -hmm. Jim helped me get into my business to begin with. I'll talk about Jim as we get into this, but my close friends, uh, Sammy Bontempo, uh, uh, Sam was... Uh, Mr. Personality, all the girls loved him. He was the best dresser. He played intramural basketball and was the big scorer on that end. Uh, Bobby Piazza, Johnny Strazani, all these Italian kids that we hung out with, Roy Goodell, uh, Don Hyman, some of them who still live in the area. Uh, Hyman owns a factory right around the corner here. So it was just a good neighborhood. Well, what kind of memories do you have from high school? Anything that went on? You know, I have that might have shape you. Exactly. Excuse me. They might have helped shape you. Well, uh, honestly, I think you know hard work. I was uh, uh, my dad was on a console here in Warrensville. 
my one of my first jobs was I tell people to this day I was a garbage man for Warrensville, mm-hmm. um, and I tell the story on how I got fired. Sammy Von Temple and I were mm-hmm. 13, 14 years old, working, picking up garbage and cleaning sewers, and we were cleaning the sewer not far from where we are right now at the Warrensville Heights High School Library. And when we were done, as a kid, I took this long pole that you put down into the sewer and you pull the sludge out, and I put it over my shoulder and I was marching up and down the street as a kid. And the supervisor, whoever it was, I don't remember, came down and fired me for marching around like a kid. <laughs> and I learned that, you know, even in uh, as a kid, you still have to work hard and not screw around and be on top of the things that you do. You know, we had just good discipline and good teachers. It was just a wonderful time. Well, you come from a Sicilian family, as you said, and my research staff, um, that's me and my producer, Alexa, uh, you know, no, noted that your dad was a carpenter, your um, uncles were electricians, so I'm just wondering what you learned from them. You know, was it work ethic? Because you transitioned, you know, well <laughs> beyond those professions, so what did you learn from them? So, uh, June, what I learned, I tell the story, my dad would take me on jobs with him as a carpenter. Uh, and he was a carpenter. He wasn't a. He wasn't a. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't the the boss. He worked for someone. And one, we knew how difficult it was when my dad got laid off. My mom ran the household. We would get a check for whatever the amount was. I don't even know. I was a kid, but my mom would take that check, cash it, turn it into cash, and have envelopes. And one envelope was for the rent payment. One envelope was for the car payment. One envelope was for food. And I remember that my mother would say to me, um, what, what, what do you guys want for dessert this week? And you'd pick something. You know, if we wanted potato chips, that's what we had. If you wanted ice cream, that's what you had. You didn't have both because we managed, had to manage the money. And my dad would take me on jobs with him uh, as a carpenter, and I would bring the shingles up a ladder, 70, 80 pounds, bundles of shingles up the ladder, and I would be pounding the floor, the subfloor. There's a floor that goes down before a finished floor. And the reason I did the subfloor is because, again, I was a kid, 14, 15 years old. I would miss the nail when I was swinging with a hammer. They didn't have guns back then like they do today to drive the nail in. It was a hammer. And I would swing the nail. I would miss it. And I would put a little dent in the floor. And my dad would get mad at me and say, you can't do the finished floor because you're missing the nail. So I, I, I learned that hard work. And I turned to my dad at one point when he said to me, Tom, you should learn how to do this you can always make a living. And I looked at him dead in the eye and I said, Dad, Mama says I'm gonna go to college. There has to be a better way to make a living than this. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. My brother and I were the first in our families to go to college. Well, that brings us to our next point. But but before that, we get there, it sounds like your mom really taught you budgeting. No question. That was a- to this day, my family laughs, my wife laughs. We've been successful, but to this day, I still enjoy a bargain. I still shop at multiple stores. Mm-hmm. I still like a coupon. Mm-hmm. I like a value. I like a BOGO. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, my mom, uh, that's how we were raised, to value money and appreciate it. Um, we live certainly a wonderful lifestyle, but I'm always about good value. Okay, so you attended Bowling Green, where you majored in advertising, and where you also met your wife of nearly 50 years. Uh, so you, and then when it, you... It really was 50 years this past August. So, okay, right. I'm good at math. Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm not, actually, but I could do that math. 
Um, so you followed Jim into the radio industry after you graduated, at which time um, it was experiencing incredible growth in the 60s and 70s. Um, so then you, uh, I'm just, for our listeners, giving a little background here, trying to compress it a bit. Great. Because there's a lot to cover with you. Uh, so you started in sales at a Cleveland radio station called WIXY. And Wixie 1260, anybody our age knows this radio station. It was okay. the big gorilla in town, right? Okay. A little before my time, but right. then yeah, we're going to yeah, get you're to... much younger. Yeah, you're well, younger. But we're going to get to my, my time. Um, so then you got into sales for the old Cleveland Arena. Right. And Where where was that? Uh, 36th and Euclid. I, okay. I uh, really, when I, when I went to... Um, at Bowling Green, I tell the story. My brother Jim was ahead of me, three years ahead. He drove to Bowling Green one weekend to visit me, and he drove up in a brand new red Mustang convertible with white. I thought it was leather, but it was really Naga hide seats. We never owned a new car in our life. And I said to my brother, where did you get this car? And he said, I bought it. I said, how? He said, I'm working. I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm selling time. I said, what is that? He says, I'm selling commercials on the radio. I wasn't quite sure what that was, but I knew you, knew you could buy a new car, and that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> so I went and applied at Wixie 1260. They didn't have a job opening, and they put me on the FM radio station there called WDOK, which I later bought uh, in life. Uh, so I'm sorry, continue, Jim. <laughs> no, the, uh, <laughs> so you were doing sales for the Cleveland Arena. What were you selling? Nick Maletti, Nick Maletti, uh, whose um, uh, mother... And my grandmother went, came from the same town in Sicily, Sant'Agata di Milodello, in Sicily. Uh, Nick uh, had bought the arena. He was a lawyer. Uh, bought the Barons. Uh, our offices were at 3940 Euclid Avenue, Wixie and WDOK. The arena was di diagonally across the street. And Nick said to me, how'd you like to come and be my sales manager? And I thought, hey, this is pretty good. I could be a sales manager instead of just a salesperson. Nick didn't tell me I was the only salesperson on the team, so I had nobody to manage <laughs> at the time. But as Nick grew, yeah. as you know, the legend of Maletti here, uh, Nick bought, uh, started the Cleveland Cavaliers, he bought the Cleveland Indians, he built the Coliseum in Richfield. I grew with Nick. He was, uh, was very fortunate to give me opportunity to grow with him and these different ends and became the vice president of sales. Ultimately, at one point, the president of the Coliseum, I had convinced Nick um, to get back into the broadcast business, and Nick acquired WKYC, AM, and FM. We changed the call letters to 3WE, WWWE. The E stood for Embrecia. The FM call letters were WWWM, M105, a rock radio station competing with WMMS. Here in town, the M stood for Maletti. Mm -hmm. And uh, Nick, I didn't make a lot of money in salary, but Nick gave me a 10% carried e equity interest in the radio station. And when we sold it for $6 million to Gannett uh, Broadcasting, I ended up with $600,000. Nice. I was rich. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so, so he was basically like a mentor to you. He was, yes. And, I mean, one of the through lines uh, in your story, um, as we progress here, is that... You're very entrepreneurial, so um, is this when you were those ideas were sort of taking shape? You're watching Nick, and you know your dad always worked for someone, so maybe um, that wasn't appealing. At some at some point, you want to be your own man, and the forces that drove that seem to be possibly these early experiences working for someone else, and maybe thinking you could do it better or do it on your own or 
Well, I think, I mean, this is a perfect example. We're here, you're the communications director for Warrensville Heights, Brad Sellers, who's the mayor, who's my friend. You know, we all strive to do better. Our parents wish that we do better in terms of what we did. So it was a natural progression to want to build and, and, and grow and, and do better. When I was a young kid, my brother and I both had paper routes. I, I grew up, by the way, my home in, in Warrensville was 19117 Kings Highway, right at the corner of uh, Kings Highway and East 190th Street, just on the border of Warrensville. And I had a paper route at the time the Cleveland Press was there. And I remember walking with, the, with my wagon with the papers on there and looking at houses, and I would try to figure out what people did who lived in the nicest houses. That was important to me to make money because I knew the significance of what it could do and transpose a family. So that entrepreneurial spirit was there early on. I, I did have a good mentor in Nick in terms of watching what he did, his good points and bad points. Uh, in terms We've of all building. got them. <laughs> yeah, in terms of building. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that helped me early on. Okay, so your 35-year-long history in radio ownership dates back to the mid-70s when you peaked with more than 50 radio and TV stations, correct me if I'm wrong. These were around the country, but locally they included um, FM stations 105.7, 102.1, 104.1, and I'm not using the call letters because I think people might know them better. Sure, but, of course. And then AM, yeah, AM stations 1100 and 850. So what did you like about this business? Well, it was exciting, first of all. It was really, we would go to a party and, and people would talk about what do you do, what do you do, and, and inevitably conversation would land on, me, on us because everybody knew the business. They knew the morning person, they mm -hmm. knew the programming, it was exciting, it was different, they had an opinion. I found myself eventually having to change the dialogue and conversation away from me to someone else. So one, it was exciting. Two, there was double-digit growth in the industry double-digit growth, 10% and higher, compounded on an annualized basis. So we always kidded that we were B players in an A industry, which is not a bad place to be. It's like today for young people to be in programming. You know, you could be a B programmer in an A industry and grow and be successful. So that's important for people who are listening to learn and understand on what they do. Um, uh, I, I had learned early on, you could leverage at that time, I could take that $600,000 that I got pre-tax and go and borrow money. At the time, Nick was moving to Los Angeles and wanted to sell his FM radio station, M105, and I wanted to buy it. He wanted $3.5 million. I went to find a bank to finance it with. There were no banks in Cleveland that would lend to non-brick-and-mortar industries. These were cash flow industries, but they didn't have a lot of hard assets. But there was a company in, in, uh, in, um, uh, up in the East who specialized in broadcast lending. And they, we were able to ledger, leverage, put down four or 500000 and borrow $3.5 million. You cannot do that at today, what, At what percent rate? Well, the rates were at the time, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it might have been 7%, 8%. There was a point in 1979 when interest rates went to 20%. But we were lucky because we had locked in our rate at a 12% interest rate, a cap that we did with our banks. Um, so a lot of luck plays in any business as well. Right place, right time, good industry. So being in um, radio and TV involves a lot of uh, shifting and evolving alongside changing public tastes, and particularly among different age demographics. Um, so the question is, you know, how did you approach this issue? Did you try to serve a, a market that was being underserved? 
how did you deal with the evolving nature? Yeah, so like any business, you try to super serve a marketplace. You know, you try to focus in and do the best you can uh, in an area. So in any station that we picked up on, whether I was buying a station in Milwaukee, St. Louis, uh, uh, L.A., wherever it was, my job was to fill a hole, fill a need, something that wasn't being served. My first television station in the 80s, I always wanted to be in television. Uh, Why? And, uh, and oh, by the way, our mm-hmm. listeners should know, mm-hmm. traditionally we have a running joke here in the broadcast business. Most radio broadcasters have a face for radio. You have to see <laughs> June because this woman needs to be on television because this is a beautiful woman who's here. And uh, But here she is doing a radio podcast. Uh, the, 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 when, when we first got into television, I looked for a station that no one had, and I found a construction permit, which meant it wasn't even on the air. And at the time, it, uh, the, there were 18 people who were fighting over this construction permit. The people that had the money, Stranahan family in Toledo, because it was located in Toledo, Ohio, um, wanted, um, they could put in the money, but they didn't know anything about television. And the people who didn't have any money wanted to build this unbelievable thing. So they were kind enough to let me put in $5 million at the time in 85 to build the station, build it out. And suddenly we owned an independent television station up against ABC, NBC, and CBS. And we had to make a decision late night after 10 o'clock at night that we would run unedited, and I'm going to repeat that again, unedited theatrical movies where there could be bare breasts after 10 o'clock at night. In Toledo, Ohio, this was very risque at the time. Did you get shut down for that? No, there not was at no all, evidence. not at all, no, not no. at all. And then two years later, along came Rupert Murdoch in 87 and made me smarter than I am. He created the Fox Network, and we started to pick up Fox Networks everywhere. And that, again, the business and the industry grew and swelled and made our, our properties much more valuable. So good timing. And luck, a little luck. Right yeah. place, right time, sure. But right you say you, want, you really wanted to get into TV. Why? It was less competitive, okay. bigger money. Uh, you know, in a market like Cleveland, Ohio, there might be 30 radio station signals, of which 15 might be viable competitors mm-hmm. that you could name, all taking a little piece of the market. In television at the time, there were three, ABC, NBC, CBS. Today, as we know, there are many ways to see things. Okay, so you built up enough capital to acquire, you know, all these stations, and... Um, in this industry, you're basically dealing with a lot of balls in the air. So you've got on-air talent, you've got content production, and ad sales, to name a few. So how did this not stress you out? Uh, well, I, I honestly, I surrounded myself with good quality people. Sue Wilson, I'll name some people, Sue Wilson, Kimberly Brown, women who kind of ran our businesses mm. at the time who were experts in programming and in uh and picking up the pieces in the accounting and operational side, sales side, Marianne Johnson was our sales manager. Uh, they were really good at what they did, and my job was just to kind of give them the platform and support them in what they did. And that helped ease it out. There's always stress in any business. We tell people when, when you own a business, when it's good, there's nothing better. But when it's tough, when interest rates go to 20%, when the economy falters in 2008, uh, you got spilkies, as my friend Albert Ratner would say at the time. A little, little tumult in your stomach at the time. Yeah, a little Yiddish there. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, ultimately, uh, you joined some other stations and you put everything up for sale as a conglomerate. Was that the plan all along? 
No, we, in the 90s, the, the government had changed the rules. Part of the reason we had a lot of different stations in a lot of different places is the government's rules on broadcast were you, were you can only own two radio stations in any given market, an AM and an FM. You could only own one television. You couldn't own a cross-ownership with radio. And in the 90s, the government changed those rules to multiple ownership, which allowed people to consolidate. You can own up to six or seven radio stations. Mm -hmm. You see it today with Clear Channel and CBS and... Uh, intercom radio here in Cleveland, Ohio, um, and and uh, when they when they put those together like that, the consolidators started to pay crazy multiples, uh, big multiples. So uh, I started to sell individual properties off my Toledo television station um, uh, for a lot more money than we had in it at a twenty-time multiple of our earnings. Uh, I was selling stations in L.A. and other markets independently. And what you're referring to was in Cleveland, Ohio, in 98, friends of ours, the Zappas family, who owned WZAK here in town and a couple other stations. Lee Zappas is a good friend. His dad, Zen, who's since passed away. Lovely family. Uh, they had the ethnic urban radio station in town. Uh, they tried to go to market, they'll tell you the story, to sell off their properties and couldn't get at the time, uh, the number that they experienced that they wanted. I had gotten wind of this, and I called Lee, and I said, Lee, uh, uh, I hear you want to sell. We don't really want to because we're making money, and it's our hometown, and it's easy, and it's fun to have a business. But if we're going to go, let's go with our pockets full. Let's put some stations together, and let's do a consortium where we offer a big package to a big player. So... I put together Lee Zappas's uh, ZAK and RQK. I went to a guy, Marty Pompadour, who was a friend of mine in New York and was on my board on another business, and he ran for Merrill Lynch Partners to be a QAL at the time. And uh, Larry Pollack, Tommy Wilson, and myself, who were partners on WDOK and, WQ and 3WE, uh, that then became WRMR, uh, 850 on the dial. We put all those together and we decided we were going to go search and find a buyer. And we identified three people. One was Mel Carmazan. Mel Carmazan uh, runs, ran Sirius Radio and ran Viacom for Sumner Redstone. Howard Stern was one of his uh, people that, that were on the air. A guy by the name of Jeff Samalian who owned the Seattle um, baseball team based in Indianapolis. I had owned a radio station in Indianapolis. It was called MS Broadcasting. Uh, and then the third guy was a guy named Tom Hicks at Hicks Muse Tate and First down in Texas. These were three big players in the industry who were consolidating things, and we had determined a price that we wanted to get. Lee Zappas will tell you the story that at two hundred million dollars, with for all these three properties, I could I could do a deal. But I, all, all my partners wanted me to contact them and make sure that they wanted to sell. We had figured out how to split it up. At $225 million, I didn't even have to call him, just sign and run away. And at $250 million, nem de gelt, as my Jewish friends would say, which means take the cash, run as fast as you can with the money. So I went to see um, uh, uh, Mel Carmazan first. He uh, sat there, we kibitz for a while, and they came back the next day and made me an offer at $225 million. They said, let me know, I'll get, I'll get back to you. The next guy, and by the way, when we talk about numbers, these are public numbers when you sell broadcast properties. The next guy, um, uh, Jeff Samoyan, said, I'll give you $250 million, half cash, half stock. I said, 
let me, I'll, I'll get back to you, I'll let you know. Now I'm down with Tom Hicks down in Texas in, a, in his uh, corporate offices, tuxedoed waiters, mm-hmm. serving me lunch. Lee Zappas was with me at the time listening. He was younger than I was on this presentation. And I said to the Hicks people, do you want to know how much we want for the properties? And they said, sure, how much do you want? And I said, $300 million. And uh, Lee Zappas tells the story where he almost choked on the cookie when I said the number. But I was full of Warrensville Heights strength and vimmer and all those things I learned growing up in the, in the area. And it was fun to say. And they said, that sounds a lot. Would you take $275 million? And we said, sure. So long story short, we sold just the Cleveland properties at that time for this number, which we split up amongst uh, all of us on, on that bench. So it was a great sale, a great time, and a culmination of growing up with the wagon, delivering the press, working with my dad, working in the Warrensville Heights area as part of what they've done. All those things added up to the ability to make that deal. It's an incredible story. I just want to add one more layer to it. What year was this, just so we understand? 1999. Okay. Okay. 1999. Okay. Um, Since then, I think, well, I'll let you continue on, Junior. No, no, what were you going to say? So I said, since then, then, we've reinvented ourselves because while we still own radio stations, we own about 14 radio stations. My brother Jim runs a group called Media One. I'm his partner with a few other peoples. We own... um, we refer to ourselves as the clear channel of PP Radio. They're small markets. PP? PP. Oh, a little small. A little yeah. PP radio station. Small, <laughs> tiny. So I can say that on the air today. It's okay. Yeah. Um, the, if you go to Jamestown, New York, to vacation, we own all the stations there. And Ashtabula, Bula, Ohio. Um, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, Tommy Wilson uh, is the principal. I'm a minority partner here in Cleveland, Ohio at La Mega at uh, 97.7, the Hispanic, Hispanic radio station in Cleveland, Ohio. So small markets, very well reduced down. One television station, we still own a Fox affiliate in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. But we reinvented ourselves and became a family venture fund. And so we own a lot of different businesses today. Manufacturing, we make motorcycles, we make drone engines, we, uh, we managed motors. Uh, we, we are invested in a lot of different businesses, but our big area today that we do is in the internet space and what's called top-level domains. Well, that is on my hit list here. Good. Uh, I thought it might be. (laughs) But before we get there, I just wondered about your feeling concerning the media climate in in Cleveland. Uh, You know, again, the media climate in Cleveland, Mickey Burns, who runs Channel 3, would probably be better off, and Brooks Baktorsky, who are my friends, to tell you because they're there every day. You know, it's a competitive climate. It's changed. If you talk to the people who work there, it's a different kind of environment. When we ran businesses, they were family businesses. We knew everybody. I knew you. I knew your background. I knew your kids. I knew your family. I knew your history. Um, Today, it's not quite like that. It's corporately owned. It's pretty driven by the stock market. Every quarter, they need to drive earnings. They make decisions a little differently. That doesn't make it bad based on what it is. It's different. It's a different Well, I think the other biggest game changer is the fact that newspapers, their business model kind of collapsed, let's say. Sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they were often out in front, and I feel like TV kind of followed their lead a little bit. And now I feel like the the uh, TV stations are the aggressive ones because they're the biggest game out there right now. They are. And TV has really had a windfall because 
Uh, originally, broadcast terrestrial ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox television stations did not get paid any money. We got preferential position on cable channels. And today, in most markets, 85 to 95% of the market is cabled. You get a, you get a delivery through a, either over the air or a line that's coming in, not a terrestrial signal traditionally, like you used to get in the 70s and 80s. And the cable operators never paid the ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox operators any money. They just gave them a prefer preferred channel. In the 90s, that changed where today it's a boon for broadcast operators because they're getting $3 a sub. And if in Cleveland, Ohio, you have you know a million and a half subs that are there and you're getting $3 from a cable network, that's, multiply it out, it's four and a half million dollars a month. Wait, what's a sub? A sub would be a, 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 a you know, a, 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 you, your household would be oh, a sub. Okay. So if you have a million subs in a, in a marketplace mm -hmm. uh, and you're getting three dollars a month from the cable company to carry your content on ABC, NBC, CBS, or Fox. Now, Local broadcasters are, broadcasters, broadcasters are tithing part of that money back to the parent company, ABC, NBC, or Fox, because part of what they want is that content, the Super Bowl, the World Series, you know, these big events that you have on traditional television stations. So that's been a real asset for local television broadcasters, and they've led the way. And car dealers certainly watch your local station. You see car dealers booming, <laughs> spending money like crazy. And we have quite a few in Lawrenceville Heights. We have, we do. Yes, we do. Okay, so let's shift to the internet. So you're, at this point in time, a 15-year veteran in the internet dom domain name business. Um, Are you just telling everybody I'm old? June's just telling everybody Tom's old. No, you, <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing wrong with getting old. That's a privilege. Great, right? thanks. Uh, so um, what has that experience been like? What drove you into it? Because this is a real shift. Hon honestly, it's been phenomenal. It's been really exciting and fun. Part of my life, part of what I'm so grateful for is the number of different opportunities I've had to learn different businesses and trades. So in 2000, a guy by the name of Ray Fassett, who's our senior vice president and a partner of mine, uh, Bob Sopko, who works at Case, had some ideas uh, to... Um, uh, to acquire what's called a top-level domain. And that sounds strange to our listeners, but it's pretty simple. It's to the right of the dot. And you know these. At the time, when we first acquired our first top-level domain, there were 12 of them in the world, .com, .net, .org, .gov, .edu, to the right of the dot. No one thought you could acquire that because everyone, when they were getting into the Internet, bought at the second level. So you bought Warrensville Heights, uh, .com, mm -hmm. and that was your URL, that was your unified identity on the internet as to how people found you. Well, uh, Facet and Sopco figured out that potentially you could own a top-level domain. It wasn't easy. You had to uh, uh, lobby and be successful at a, a group called ICANN, the Internet Corporation of Assigned Names and Numbers, very similar to the FCC to acquire a, a license to operate in the root service this string of letters that you put together. And uh, so um, uh, Facet walked in and said, "This, I think this is a licensing opportunity. We concurred and we invested with, with Ray and supported him for about three years while we tried to secure a license. I remember 
picking up the phone and calling the powers at ICANN. These are the people that ran the internet worldwide. I'm thinking, oh my God, this must be unbelievable. Well, it was a dozen guys in <laughs> Marina del Rey, California, who were running the internet trying to figure out you know, the best way to proliferate it and make it grow. And it turns out I called them and said, I'm going to be in L.A. for a Fox meeting. My daughter, Amanda's out there as well. She's a lawyer for Paramount Television and their entertainment division. Um, I want to take you to lunch. And they said, great. And we went to, I remember to this day, Chinois in Maine, uh, Wolfgang Puck's uh, great Asian restaurant. And when I walked in, their chief legal counsel, John Jeffries, looked at me and said, how's Amanda? And I looked at him, and Amanda's my oldest daughter, who's the lawyer out on the West Coast. And I said, how do you know her? He said, I worked with her when we first started up. So we had an immediate bond. And they were looking to build the Internet in terms of proliferating, you know, making it bigger by following a lot of the things that the FCC did. So they picked my brain and wanted to know how you acquired licenses. And quite frankly, there's a lot of similarities between acquiring a top-level domain and acquiring a broadcast license. When you get a top-level domain, you get it for 10 years. It's 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 uh, renewable as long as you abide by what you say you're going to do. Uh, you pick a string, and, you are, and, and that string identifies what you are. So we applied at the time for dot jobs. Jobs was a place where people were making money in the recruitment industry. The monsters, the career builders, um, had all built huge multi-billion dollar businesses around it. We thought this was an interesting way to do it. The other option that where people were making money was in porn. We didn't want to do that uh, ourselves, so Jobs was a good, good place for us to start. And in 2005, we acquired, we were successful enough to acquire this license worldwide in China, in in Thailand, uh, in in England, and even on Mars today there's a transponder where you can send a signal. My running joke used to be when Osama bin Laden was alive that he could uh, apply to be goofy at Walt Disney World jobs uh, from his cave in Afghanistan while he was hiding because he was tall. Uh, it's a worldwide license that you receive where you're able to disseminate information and you pick almost like a format. Ours is jobs content and what we look to do is what we call verticals on the market. Com is all things to all people. Very similar to what ABC, NBC, and CBS was originally here in, in, in terrestrial. On terrestrial uh, uh, networks, you know, you get news in the morning, you get some soap operas during the day, you get news at noon, you can get sports on the weekend, you get comedies, you know, late night. A little night. everything. A little everything. But you're looking for a niche. Um, we're, 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 we're following the mold of, of, um, of uh, uh-huh. narrow casting the way cable companies have done with who knew that people wanted to hear news 24-7. <laughs> Ted Turner did and created CNN. Scripps Howard did and created HGTV and the Food Network. 24-7 verticals. You go to the Food Network, you don't expect to get sports there. You go to ESPN, you don't expect to get food content. You so, come, my, yeah, micro-audiences. Yeah, exactly, these, yeah. These, these verticals, if you would. And they're not so micro. They're pretty huge. You know, so if you go to jobs.jobs, right, last year over 300 million people visited .jobs domains. What would be an example of what Amazon.jobs, right down the street from us, this huge, 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 unbelievable, Warrensville is so fortunate in this area, we've got all these big developers here, Amazon.jobs, uh, not, in a, not in a Google search bar, 
But in the address bar up at the top, if you just type in Amazon period jobs, mm -hmm. you're going to Amazon's page to hire you at one of these warehouses or one of the, their businesses that they're expanding on. You know, Walt Disney World, Panera, uh, AT&T.jobs. We also have a consortium that we run under find.jobs, F-I-N-D period jobs. And if you went there, there's 10 million jobs posted and you could type in Warrensville Heights sales and you'll see all the jobs available in Warrensville Heights that are sales oriented. It might be a discount drug mart sales job. It might be a sales job at Don Hyman, my friend who I grew up with, has a business here at one of their places. But all these jobs are there. So it's really, really an interesting opportunity. Do you plan to do more? We do. In 2012, we applied for more. And we acquired uh, with our partners the National Association of Realtors, the largest okay. trade association in the world. Uh, we own the string, we own Dot Realtor, and we own Dot Real Estate. So right now, about 125,000 realtors use uh, June Schraff Dot Realtor. And the reason that you do that as versus your dot com address is you want to identify yourself on the internet on exactly what you do. It tells people immediately that I'm a realtor, I'm a higher level of what we did. We just launched three weeks ago. I was in Boston two weeks ago with my son Matthew, who's the president of our company. Um, we just launched Dot Real Estate, uh, and we launched. We did a limited launch to about forty thousand realtors, and we sold. We've licensed about thirteen thousand Dot Real Estate names, all the way from Hunting Valley Dot Real Estate, Shaker Heights Dot Real Estate, Pepper Pike, Ohio, New York, New York City, Malibu. L.A., Oceanfront, Las Vegas. These are identifying marks on the Internet, almost like buying land on the Internet with a great address. Mm -hmm. And you could buy them, you license them annually from us. So it's very inexpensive to do. You build a website. And if you went to, right now, uh, New York, period, real estate, you'll see a website that proliferates, uh, that pops up where people are listing real estate in New York. Okay, so for a minute, let's just talk the um, uh, finances of this, sure. the, bus the business, the business model. Sure. So they, your revenue stream is the licensing. Fee. Our revenue stream, we we look at multiple revenue streams. We build sites for people. Mm -hmm. uh, we we uh, run sites ourselves under find jobs. We run sites ourselves where we get pay per click, where we get uh, we sell ads on there, and then in addition, we license to you the use. Amazon pays us a minimal fee through GoDaddy or through uh, through a registrar who sells it to them, uh, what they do. Got it. Sounds so simple, Tom. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 and the margins are large, so we like the business, and it's like an insurance business. You Once you, once you build Amazon.jobs or Amazon Delivers.jobs or whatever it might be, uh, ASDA, which is Walmart's subsidiary in England, Ray Fassett was sending me stuff yesterday from around the world, uh, uh, Thailand, uh, Germany, different companies that use the dot job string. It's fun. Mm -hmm. It's fun, and it's fun to see. And I walked out of Panera the other day. I went to pick up uh, some food for some workers by us, and when I walked out, big sign that says, looking to hire people, go to Panera dot jobs. Wow. So it's cool, fun. Very satisfying. Yeah. Uh, well, my last question is uh, simply related to any... Uh, charitable causes that you're passionate about. So my wife, we we have a we have a running joke. Judy has a foundation. It's the Judith A. Ambrosia uh, Family Foundation, and the running joke is, 
I'm supposed to make it and she's supposed to give it away. So mm -hmm. she's pretty passionate. She's a teacher by nature. We met at Bowling Green State University. We've been married 50 years in August, um, this past August. And she was, um, uh, when we first got married, she taught in the Chagrin Falls School District. Uh, she went back to get her master's at John Carroll in education, became a principal in Newberry. And then as my business expanded and we started to travel, she left that area, but has always been passionate about education and super serving people, and so has served on the boards at Laurel School and Tri-C and PEP, Positive Education Program, which helps young people go to college that might not have been uh, uh, um, uh, uh, college now, all these different areas that she's been part of. And so those are the areas that we're passionate about. It's interesting because there's so many good causes and we get a lot of people who come to us for different areas and you almost have to determine where you can invest and where you can't. And so ours has been for education for children. Excellent. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, that's everything I've got. Is there anything else you want to add here? Uh, one, I, you know, for anybody, you know, my guess is this is a Warrensville group who's going to listen to this podcast, not that it can't go international in terms of what you do, okay. uh, but, but uh, you know, this is a great area. It's a great opportunity. Uh, I, I tell young people all the time, how do you get ahead? I do these speeches three times a year uh, from the Weatherhead School to Bowling Green State University to to um, uh, bankers and, and other, and they want to hear my story, but really I know in the audience they're thinking, Brescia, I'm glad that you did well, I'm glad that you're successful, I'm glad you're making money, but screw you, how do I do that? Mm -hmm. And I tell them, you know, you want to, three things, be bright, aggressive, and lucky. Bright, learn. They ask me, how much education do I need? Get as much as you can get. If some of you can get, get a master's, get it. If you can get a PhD, get it. If you don't get anything at all, it doesn't matter. You learn from your parents, you learn from your your, your, your co-workers, your bosses. Some people might treat you really well. When I worked with my dad and we went to someone's house, I always felt a little outside when we were working in their house, but when they treated us nicely, I always felt so good. So I've learned from that, and I've had other people who didn't treat us so no, so well, and I would never do that in my work uh, part. So you learn, and then uh, you gotta be aggressive. In today's MTV world, you can't sit back and expect stuff to come to you. You have to stand out in your own way, your own style, whether it's the look that you have on, the big hoop earrings that June has on, her <laughs> lipstick, beautiful black and red skirt, uh, uh, you know, boots. You, you have to stand out in your own way to be identified and be separated out in today's world. And so I tell our banks all the time, we're going to pay you back when you lend us this money. I'm not going to personally take a penny till I pay you back. The banks always say, I know that, Tom, I know that. But I think they feel good that someone's reinforcing their commitment to them. So you gotta be aggressive. And the last one is you gotta be lucky. <laughs> right place, right time. I did a speech at Bowling Green three years ago for a, um, uh, a, a Shark Tank kind of event. They had their 2,000 people. Damon Johns, who was the uh, uh, Ubu guy from Shark Tank, was a speaker, and myself and a couple other people. And I went there early in the morning and I bought $210 gift certificates, Starbucks, Pizza Hut, you know, different things, and I taped them under the chairs before people got there. <laughs> and to me, uh, after I was done with my, my entertainment speech, and you could see that online, by the way, I, I said to people, stand up and look under your chair and see if you got lucky. See if you won a gift, and people did. And I said, I'm not sure if you got lucky just because you came here today, because you were aggressive, because you wanted to learn what the reason was, but 
You just won a $10 gift certificate. So <laughs> that luck part is something that falls in. Anyway, June, thank you so much. It's been fun to be with you. You're very good at what you do. Thank you. Well, we, re <laughs> we really appreciate having you as our guest. You're welcome.